Just a few minutes ago, my office filed a lawsuit against the National Rifle Association to dissolve the organization in its entirety for years of self-dealing and illegal conduct that violate New York's charities law and undermine its own mission. Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello, and welcome back. Thanks. And also Alex Lawson. Uh, hi, everyone. Amber, it is good to have you back. It's nice to be here, guys. I feel um, bad that I missed the great episode you guys put together about the bar exam and all the chaos and trouble people are having. Uh, it, was, it was really nice to hear Steve Trader, our producer on the mic, some too. <laughs> The dulcet tones. Uh, yeah, like I said in the in the show, I mean, it was probably pretty foolish of us to maybe do this without the one person who took the bar exam. But honestly, uh, um, you know, in listening, but you to were it, saying you might have not really been able to hold it together anyway. Yeah, so. I felt like you guys did me a favor because <laughs> I just look back on my experience with the bar exam as a a real dark point in my life, and I <laughs> took it in a real normal time where everything worked the way it was supposed to, and it was just the stress of such an important exam in your life. Yeah. I just have so much empathy for the people that are going through it right now. I can't even imagine how hard that must be, and you saved me from having to uh, feel sad and frustrated on the air. Well, yeah. and we've gotten some really good feedback from uh, from people. Yes. A lot of people have emailed us saying, you know, telling us more of, of their stories. So keep keep the emails coming. It's it's great to hear from everybody. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, good. We have a we have a interesting show today, guys. I think right. Uh, we're gonna later on. We're gonna so. talk about the uh, uh, Neil Young suing uh, Donald Trump. The Trump campaign over the use of music during rallies. Very interesting. You set your watch fun to it. Story. Trump got sued again, and we are here to talk about it with you. <laughs> yeah, so, yes. I mean, it happens a lot, but it's really nice that you'll be able to walk us through that one, Bill, and sort of, uh, you know, talk about what the options are when when an artist has their music used in a way that they don't like. Yeah, but before then, uh, as we heard in the intro to the show, we're going to talk about the uh, the big lawsuit today out of the New York State Attorney General's office. Uh, Alex walks yes. through it. Uh, yeah, we got, uh, like like you say, it was just this morning, Thursday morning, as we were getting ready to show, some last-minute adjustments were made. Uh, New, York, New York Attorney General Letitia James uh, brought a civil suit against the National Rifle Association this morning, basically alleging a range of different financial misconduct. Uh, most notably, uh, the, the, the big news is really about how, how aggressively crafted the suit is because it's not just asking for sort of damages or penalties or things like that. The suit is aiming to shutter, basically dissolve the nation's most influential guns rights lobby for good. So it's, uh, it's a very interesting uh, case. Yeah, this is a really splashy development. I think people are going to be talking about this one a lot um, because the NRA is really powerful and, and of course, there's political things that go into a big lobbying group like this. But what's actually in the suit? What are they saying? Yeah, we'll talk about the politics a little bit because it is important here. But as far as the just the the actual allegations in the civil action that was that was unveiled today, it's uh, a pretty rigorous uh, complaint. So what you basically need to understand about the suit is that, you know, for all of its for all of its might and all of its influence, the NRA is still a nonprofit, um, and organizations like that are subject to very strict rules about how they spend the money that is donated to them. And the attorney general's lawsuit basically says that those rules have repeatedly been broken by the NRA and its leaders, including its longtime CEO, Wayne LaPierre, LaPierre and three other um, current and former 
NRA officials are named in the suit along with the organization itself. Uh, James's office put out a statement today. It said, quote, the NRA's influence has been so powerful that the organization went unchecked for decades while top executives funneled millions into their own pockets. The NRA is fraught with fraud and abuse, which is why today we seek to dissolve the NRA because no organization is above the law. So, so pretty light, pretty light commentary there. Yeah, um, definitely not. <laughs> Yeah, so um, the suit is 169 pages long. If you can think of some kind of financial misconduct, it's probably in here. I spent the morning going over this a little bit. But at bottom, it's basically like a self-dealing suit. The NRA and its leaders are accused of committing fraud by using you know, donated funds to enrich themselves and others close to them. Um, just a couple of the highlights here. Like I say, you should definitely check out the complaint if this is interesting to you because it goes on and on at length. Um, but uh, Wayne LaPierre, who's been the CEO for, uh, or he's been, in, he's been in a leadership role for nearly three decades with the NRA, he's alleged to have spent basically millions of donated money on private plane trips for himself and his family, travel consultants and expense reimbursements. He also allegedly secured for himself a $17 million post-employment contract, which is basically meant to be a payout even after he leaves the organization. And he did that, again, allegedly, without getting approval from the NRA's board. Uh, the complaint also says that, La- that LaPierre retaliated against people who worked at the NRA, who basically tried to call him out for this and raise flags internally. Uh, one, one thing I learned today is that the uh, former treasurer and chief financial officer of the NRA... Uh, he goes by Woody Phillips, and he's named that in today's documents. However, his birth name is Wilson Phillips. <laughs> I should note. I should note just a little behind-the-scenes action here. Uh, Alex chatted me earlier when he had discovered this, as if he had unearthed the greatest discovery of all time. It was amazing. <laughs> well, but, I just well, feel like. But will Wilson Phillips hold on for one more day as well, he's... Uh, turmoil enshrines yeah. the, the group? I mean. It's not like it's like some mind blowing thing, but this is like one of those things that I just know I'm gonna I'm gonna have this in my head for the rest of my life. Like sure. the last <laughs> neuron that fire that fires in my frontal lobe when I pass away is gonna be like uh, the former CFO of of the NRA is named Wilson Phillips. Anyway, uh, he is alleged to have secured uh, again uh, similar to, uh, uh, similar to Lapierre. He 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 secured this like sort of post. This very lucrative post-employment contract for consulting that the attorney general says never really happened. I got to get uh, myself a post-employment contract. I know. Sound I'm, I'm learning terrific. all about yeah. that today. Uh, it, and and uh, he, oh, he's also Phillips. Wilson Phillips is also alleged to have secured a uh, one million dollar contract that benefited his girlfriend at the time. There's just a whole bunch of this stuff. That's just a smattering. There's stuff about like improper bookkeeping, auditing, tax documentation. Uh, all these rules that nonprofits have have to comply with um, that the attorney general's office say, uh, says that they have not. It's a real cornucopia of allegations here. It's a bounty. Would, it really yeah, is for, I would for financial malfeasance. The NRA must have uh, they must have a lot to say about how wrong the suit is. I mean, I imagine they're already out there saying it. What's what's going on well, with them? Not only are they saying it, uh, they have already filed a suit of their own. They've countersued the AG's office, basically sort of painting this as 
purely a political ploy, and that's why I said even the politics of this matter for the legal questions, because they're basically saying the suit was unconstitutional and is only meant to, this is a quote from their statement today, quote, silence the NRA's advocacy and neutralize it as an opposing political force. So they, they, they clearly knew it was coming. They filed the countersuit, you know, like I think an hour after, after James's office announced her suit. James had been investigating the organization for over a year. They have been butting heads basically since she was running for the office. She, she said that she, she called the NRA a terrorist organization when she was stumping for uh, to be the New York AG. And they appear, like I say, ready to fight it to the hilt as sort of uh, uh, purely on a constitutional sort of silencing political speech question. It's such an interesting uh, idea, this situation, because it... it it is so inherently political, yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the you know the going after them is you know however you do it is going to be political to some degree, yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't doing these things. It's a, yeah, it's yeah. an interesting that that sort of both can be true at the same time. Um, yeah, I, I remember a couple a couple months ago, or maybe it was last year, we heard a lot about the NRA and sort of the you know legal and regulatory and accounting woes that they were going through where does this fit in with that a lot of the yeah there's been a lot of stories that have been trickling out about sort of financial distress like you say and this sort of internecine infighting uh within the organization like a power struggle and a lot of that stuff spilling into the press there are a lot of reasons for that um but i mean for our purposes we can safely say that a lot of that is due to legal troubles so lapierre said uh, in April that they've dumped about $100 million in legal fees over the last two years. And that covers a range of there's been congressional inquiries, state attorney general investigations like the one that led to a to a suit today, uh, internal whistleblower complaints. They've also been in a very high profile dust up with uh, former PR firm Ackerman McQueen. Um, basically, that 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 relationship went totally sour. And now they're they're both suing each other. Uh, the organization said in an April filing that that case alone swallowed up about $54 million worth of uh, legal funds over the last two years. So they're having some problems. Um, but like I said at the beginning, the real the real news here is the ambition of the case, I think, trying to basically shut down the NRA entirely for good. Uh, listeners of the show might remember that James's office did this last year with the Trump Foundation, that is the charitable arm of the Trump organization. Now, even with its financial woes, which you just laid out, the NRA is considerably, considerably more powerful organization than that wing of the Trump uh, Foundation. So we could be in for uh, a very like a, a, a potentially years long battle here as they as they fight this out. So we're going to turn now from that big new case that has bubbled up um, and instead close out one that we've talked about a lot. And as legal nerds, we've been watching really closely. Um, yes. This one is a ruling that came out just today from the federal circuit about how the judiciary collects and spends PACER fees. So for anybody who might not know that acronym, I think most of our listeners probably do, but PACER is that federal electronic court records program. So it's how you access all of the dockets and um, the motions and the opinions of federal courts. Mm -hmm. So today, the federal circuit said the judiciary improperly spent nearly $200 million for court technology projects that were not related to maintaining that PACER system. I'm excited uh, for to see how much of a refund Law 360 gets. Uh, we yeah, are, yeah, we've uh, certainly racked up our share. We are power share. users. We are power users of <laughs> power. 
Um, yes. But okay, so that's a lot of money. I mean, and I was joking about us getting some of it, but uh, what you know, what what was this case about, and sort of like you know, what is what is unpack the ruling for us a little bit. Yeah, so this is a class action that some transparency groups brought. It's the National Veterans Legal Services Program, National Consumer Law Center, and Alliance for Justice. They said the the federal judiciaries, it's ten cents per page, basically for most things in PACER, and that that fee was way more than what the law actually allows them to collect, which is charging only for what's needed to run the PACER site. That's how the transparency groups saw it. On the flip side, the government said the statute's way broader than that, and that it includes being able to spend these fees on any project that contributes to, quote, dissemination of information through electronic means. So you can see that that might be far broader in scope about how they can lawfully use these funds. Mm -hmm. So this went to a district court. And back in 2018, the lower court judge didn't agree with either party. They they thought both interpretations were a little bit wrong. Um, Instead, they went with sort of a middle ground here. The judge said the government properly used PACER fees to handle costs associated with a couple of companion electronic case management type systems. They're very similar to PACER itself, Mm -hmm. um, but overstepped to the tune of almost $200 million um, when it spent fees on a bunch of other projects. And that included stuff like uh, maintaining audiovisual equipment in courtrooms, uh, putting flat screen TVs in some areas, uh, electronic systems for juror management, um, victim notification, just a wide array of uses of that money. So it was the reason that this is so interesting is, as you already said, like both the the sort of, you know, access to justice, you know, you know, you know, judicial access advocates and the and the government uh, had each had their had their positions sort of turned away by the court and neither of them were happy. And in fact, they both appealed uh, the case, you know, like, you know, the advocates basically say it should be effectively free because it costs almost no money. You know, if I pay three, like if I have to pay three dollars worth of pacer fees to get, you know, a 30 page uh, opinion, it doesn't it obviously doesn't cost, you know, it, it doesn't cost the court three dollars to send me that document they, that, you know, that's the crux of their thing. While the government, of course, says it needs more room. It has, you know, wide authority to, to do this stuff. And the stakes of those arguments, I think, can't be, you know, uh, can't be overstated Definitely. That, that you have. It's it feels sort of semantic-y to to be talking about this stuff, but I mean we're talking about one wing of our government here, and yeah. when you're imposing a paywall on it, it really is changing the the way that people can access that. I mean, yeah, I think that's exactly right, Bill. Because you know, just to be clear, the federal circuit sided entirely with the district court. They upheld mm-hmm. what they ruled, and it was basically that Goldilocks approach. Yeah, the appeals the court even went so far as to say this little bit, which I loved. The district court got it just right. Felt very fairy tale like to me that that little turn of phrase. Someone's but- sleeping in my bed, and there <laughs> she is. Uh, that was uh- a weird addendum. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Yes. So, um, but what you're getting at, Bill, was also something the Fed Circuit was thinking about. They they flat out just mentioned those First Amendment stakes that were really at play here. They said that if a large number of Americans can't afford pacer fees to access court records, the public really can't participate and they can't serve as a check on what the judicial branch is doing. Um, that creates all kinds of problems. Um, advocates, like you also sort of referenced there, They've pointed to ordinary people who need to access court records, but beyond that, journalists and researchers who will be thwarted if the fees are so high that they can't do mass scale research projects about court documents. Um, and they have definitely asked for it to 
be free. I mean, that's that's the mm-hmm. ultimate goal for these transparency groups. The court itself stopped short of going there. They said the fee sh- shouldn't necessarily be thrown out entirely, but their big thing was that they said, hey, um, go to Congress for that. Mm-hmm. They they basically said that that was more a question that could be handled on the legislative side than in this case. And so that's where we've left it. I think we may see a continued push to make it all free. For our main story this week, we are talking about uh, Neil Young, we're talking about President Trump, we're talking about copyright law. It's, uh, it's got it all. Um, <laughs> yes. The legendary rock star is uh, suing the Trump campaign, seeking to stop him from playing Young's songs at campaign rallies, uh, most notably Rockin' in the Free World. Um, seems like it should be an easy thing to do. You know, you own your own songs and you should be able to decide who plays them. But it is not that simple as, uh, it's, it's a lot more complicated than, than you might imagine. <laughs> uh, this, this is sort of, this is a phylum of news story that pops up always during, during election season and primary season and things like that. Some, some politician will play a song by an artist who does not share that politician's views. It can go in, you know, either direction. And then they always chime in and say, hey, stop it. Uh, But, you know, we don't always see it, you know, get get pushed into to to litigation like we're seeing here. But give us the basics about how this how this generally works as part of the law. We almost never see it get pushed into litigation, which is something we're going to talk about. But um, so Young filed a copyright lawsuit in Manhattan federal court on Tuesday um, against the Trump reelection campaign. He claims that they performed two of his songs. I mentioned Rockin' in the Free World, but also Devil's Sidewalk uh, at at uh, political rallies without the proper license. The quote from the complaint. This complaint is not intended to disrespect the rights and opinions of American citizens who are free to support the candidate of their choosing. However, plaintiff in good conscience cannot allow his music to be used as a, quote, theme song for a divisive, un-American campaign of ignorance and hate. So, uh, not mincing words, um, yeah. he wants the campaign to, to stop using them, and he has gone to court to do so. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. We keep alluding to how this gets complicated, but when does it get complicated? It seems like, you know, he owns the copyright, <laughs> yeah. he sues the person that used it. Stop uh, teasing allegedly, us. Give us that, unlawfully. Give us that legal minutia that, 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 that we love you for, Bill. So whether a political campaign has a right to use a song is uh, not straightforward at all. Um, Perhaps unsurprisingly, as Alex alluded to, many musicians don't want to be associated with politics and particularly with the politics of President Trump. Um, Guns N' Roses, Pharrell, Rihanna, and most recently Tom Petty's family uh, have all complained about their music being played at the president's rallies. Um, but but as I alluded to, Young is the only one of those of that group who has actually gone through and filed a federal lawsuit. And even he waited five years to bring this case. Um, 
Young first complained about uh, Trump's use of rocking in the free world back in 2015 because um, you, you may not remember, but that was the song that was playing when Trump came down the escalator in the, the famous moment at Trump Tower when he announced his presidential run. That is some group of people, thousands. So as you heard there, that was playing there. Um, Young didn't like it at the time. He complained about it, but um, uh, didn't end up filing a lawsuit uh, until this week about, uh, you know, the continued use of his songs. So what are like the what are the like the the roadblock? Why is it so rare? I guess I'm asking like if it, if it, it seems like so many people have a problem with it. What are the actual sort of impediments that 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 maybe that maybe, you know, chill some of these suits from going forward? Typically, political campaigns will have a license for the music that they play at their events. Um, the campaigns pay for what are known as blanket licenses that give them the right to play like tens of thousands of different songs. Um, mm -hmm. These these licenses they're they're issued by groups uh, like ASCAP and BMI. Um, they exist so that stadiums, bars, restaurants, retailers can play music sort of ambiently over the you know in public um safely and easily and and not be at risk of uh putting themselves on the hook for a copyright lawsuit so um what gets us in trouble with these blanket licenses is that they don't involve the artists themselves signing off um by design they are they are created so that a user just pays a fee and then has access to the big catalog they're designed to make this whole process easy so that's why musicians so often will, you know, turn on a TV and see a Trump rally where their song is being played and they go, oh, I, I didn't let him do that. But in reality, you know, mm -hmm. with the legal architecture in place, a lot of the times they sort of did. Well, I mean, what is someone like Neil Young or one of these other upset artists to do then? I mean, if you can't just do a straight up copyright suit saying like you you didn't have the right to play this because of this blanket license is there anything else they can try yeah so there, there's sort of more uh, you know there's other legal avenues people could go down here you could you could sue claiming that um the campaign is sort of falsely in in implying that you endorsed the candidate um mm -hmm. that might be a particularly effective argument if the you know, they're using your song and the lyrics it's themselves in a way that sort of echoes the themes of the of the campaign or you're using it so often that it becomes sort of a, a theme song. Um, you know, th there you could sue basically saying th there's a state law right to control your the, the use of your the commercial use of your likeness and your persona. Mm -hmm. So you could sue into that. You can sue under the federal trademark statute and say, which pr prohibits false endorsements. But all of this stuff is kind of a stretch. The, the, the best way to do this is, is a plain old fashioned copyright lawsuit, which is what, uh, yeah. which is what Neil Young brought here. Well, I said you'd give us that 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 good legal minutia, and now we uh, we understand the sort of difficulties with bringing suits like this. But we know that he's bringing, like you say, just a standard copyright suit. I mean, why do, do we have a sense of why he thinks he can overcome these 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 hurdles that we've laid out? Neil Young, classic rocker, classic lawsuit. What's he? Yes, doing? yeah, um, he's just going against the grain, thumb in the <laughs> eye. That you know that 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 whole thing. 
Yeah, so in recent years, the groups that offer these big blanket licenses have tried to fix this problem because it does come up quite a bit. Um, They've created these special licenses for political entities that are separate from the licenses they offer to bars and stadiums and restaurants and everyone else. Crucially, those political sort of special licenses are designed to allow an artist to exclude their music from politics generally or exclude a particular campaign. They're, They're designed to give people more control over the way that their music is licensed when it gets into these sort of politically mm-hmm. fraught uh, contexts. So my so guess... So how would that work? Would, would the, the artist just say, like, don't use me in any political context? Or would they say, like, I'm a Democrat, don't Republicans can't use me? Like, how, how would that operate? Well, the idea is that um, the, the, uh, the campaign themselves, when they go to get a license to have rallies, are offered this special mm. license. You can remove your music from that license, thus they can't use it. And it's my understanding that they also have, you know, an even more granular approach that you're able to um, pick and choose, you know. Like which uh, political figure could use ex- it kind of thing? Exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So my guess is from this lawsuit, which I mentioned earlier, really is just you used our song without permission and it infringes our copyright. My guess from the outside is that Neil Young used those mechanisms that have been created to make it so that he knows that Trump, uh, no matter what license he took out, yeah. it doesn't have Rockin' in the Free World or any of his songs on it so that he's pretty clear that you don't have a copyright license. Mm-hmm. There is one further complicating factor here that that we should talk about, which is... The campaign still might have some ground to defend playing this song, which, you know, gets at the idea that it is so hard to really definitively say you didn't have the right to play this. So the convention centers and the hotels and the venues where these rallies take place, they often have their own separate blanket license for, for all for all these songs um, that, that, you know, covers them as a venue. Those licenses themselves will typically cover the songs even if they're excluded from the political license so mm-hmm. there's some sort of gray area overlap of interesting of you know yes we have a political license and it doesn't cover this but the venues covered it um and there's reason to believe that the trump campaign might make that argument um in 2018 axel rose accused uh trump of of exploiting those venue licenses to get around the restrictions of the political license. Axel Rose tweeted in 2018, Unfortunately, the Trump campaign is using loopholes in the various venues' blanket performance licenses, which were not intended for such craven political purposes without the songwriter's consent. Axel Rose, as always, a... Uh, a a valued uh, source of wisdom here. Um, so, I can't wait until one of us runs for public office and we see which artist sues us playing <laughs> their songs. I, Amber, I would guess that if it was you, it would be Meatloaf. It would have um, to be. Oh, yeah. yeah. I would never play it, though. Yeah. I wouldn't get in that kind of trouble. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, thanks for explaining all that, Bill. Dinner show is something offbeat, and what do we have today, guys? I would like to say that I am just thrilled 
to have offbeat back. Yeah, uh, yeah. Been a couple yeah. dry dry weeks here. Yeah. We've got a couple weeks where, you know, a little more serious subject matter. Sure. Uh but we've got we've got a good one today. Um <laughs> involves people taking LSD, uh Major League Baseball players, nudity, violence. <laughs> Great. Uh, All your favorites. We really saved up for this big week then. Yeah. What happened? Well, yeah, yeah, tell uh, us about it. So let's wind the clock back to uh, January of 2015. A guy named Connor Pope, uh, he was 18 at the time, he and a few buddies in California, they decided that they were going to drop acid. They were going to take some LSD. So far, so good. Sounds, sounds healthy and fun. So they decide they're going to go to Connor's house. Someone gets the acid. Uh, and, you know, as per their plans, they took it. Can I just say, like, of course you took acid at, quote, Connor's house. Oh, for sure. Dude, what a, we're going to Connor's we're house, We're going man. to Connor's house. We're dropping acid. It's going to oh, be Oh, it's going to be nuts. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. going all weekend. It's going to okay. be a safe environment. Okay, so we got some guys doing acid at Connor's house. Connor and his bros have taken their acid. Um, <laughs> so pretty rapidly uh, after they took this LSD, uh, one guy, a guy named Dominic Pintarelli, which sounds like every goddamn guy I went to high school with. Uh, <laughs> Dom and Connor. Yeah. Dominic Pintarelli becomes agitated and rather violent. Okay. Uh, he, Not great. He attacked our guy Connor. Uh, he destroyed some property at Connor's house, and then he left. It just so happens that Connor and his family live directly next door to Greg Reynolds. Now, you may not know who Greg Reynolds is, but in 2006, Greg Reynolds was the second overall draft pick in the Major League Baseball amateur draft. I, I had to look it up. I didn't remember uh, Greg Reynolds. This was a loaded draft. If you're a baseball fan, this draft had Tim Lincecum, Max Scherzer, Evan Longoria, but this guy went number two. So, yeah, so the, uh, the, the, the 2006 number two draft pick, uh, <laughs> he's at home around 3 p.m. this day, and he hears a commotion outside. So he looks outside, and he sees our man, Dominic Pintarelli, outside attempting to knock over his mailbox. <laughs> Wait, did you say this was 3 p.m.? This is the middle of the afternoon. Oh, yes. man. Amber, I don't know if you're an experienced cool. drug user. Acid no. lasts for quite a while. Uh, great. Well, he said uh, with authority. I'm, I'm learning a lot from Pro Se this week. Go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, Greg sees this and he goes outside. And, uh, you know, by, in the time that it takes him to get outside, he now discovers Pinterelli sitting on the ground taking off his clothes. Mm-hmm. He's decided okay. in that moment his truth is to be fully nude while <laughs> taking acid on a on a stranger's front lawn. On okay. a stranger's front lawn, got it. Um, Greg Reynolds, great baseball player, seemingly great guy, goes up <laughs> to Dom and he says, "Hey man, are you okay?" Dom turns out not okay. No, he starts. Doesn't, he doesn't sound like he's okay. He starts attacking Greg. No. Uh, and and so our man Greg Reynolds runs back to the house and locks the door. Pinterelli, undeterred, runs at the front door, cracking the frame in in an apparent attempt to knock it down. 
Oh, Cracking man. the frame? Wow. Okay. We've got so, we've suddenly gone from like lighthearted shenanigans to like scary. So top MLB prospect Greg Reynolds <laughs> is concerned that his door is going to get kicked in by this guy. Seems so like a fair concern. I mean, he's got a nude, drug-addled man on his front lawn attempting to kick down his door. Mm-hmm. So he opens the door, and what do you do there? He strikes Dominic Pinterelli squarely in the face. So yeah, I mean, it's a it's a, it's a B and E. I mean, I'm no I'm no criminal law expert, but man, yeah. Police arrived on the scene shortly after, and uh, you know, but the damage was done both to Greg's mailbox, but also to Greg's hand. Uh, he had uh-huh. broken his hand while punching Pinterelli, and I don't know if you guys have ever seen a baseball game, but the hands are a pretty important part of the whole skill set. I was going to say, and I bet it was his pitching hand. I mean, if he's, I, I, I bet he led with the dominant hand. That's just a so. Guess. I mean, his career. This was 2015. He had been drafted in 2006. He was already sort of on the way out. He had he was playing in Japan, and um, uh, but so he was attempting a U.S. comeback at this point, and mm-hmm. the injury according to uh, Reynolds, really uh, sort of derailed that. So uh, after all this went down, he filed a lawsuit against uh, against his neighbors, against uh, Connor Pope and against uh, against Dominic Pinterelli, uh, the the attacker. So in 2018, a California state jury uh, sided with Greg Reynolds, said that uh, the neighbors were at fault here and um, gave him what was at the time a uh, a about two million dollar verdict for you know the the idea that this that the neighbors were at fault and it had derailed his career. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to last week, and that verdict uh, one point five million dollars of that verdict in favor of Reynolds was upheld by a California state appeals court, saying that you know that under under the the factors the courts look here that the verdict had passed muster yeah it actually is an inter- i mean we're it's obviously a humorous story which is why we're talking about it at the end of the show it is an interesting sort of legal part, part like uh it's an interesting area of the law because you know like you say that the hosts of the party are now on the hook for uh old dom going rogue and like breaking down a door right um i thought it was really interesting the uh the the appeals court that affirmed this led in, in the very first paragraph they, they they described the party next door as quote for the express purpose of taking lsd <laughs> it was very um, good and one other <laughs> oh sorry did you have something else well this is this is only this is why when i have my lsd parties i don't put that stuff like on the evite or anything like that that's a that's just a, <laughs> that's a rookie mistake well and it's funny that you mention uh that it was for the express purpose of L- of taking lsd because it turns out what they were taking was not actually LSD. Oh, what a plot uh, twist. Oh, what was it? A defense expert uh, later testified that the drug taken was likely not LSD, but instead PCP. Oh, Ooh. my God. That explains so much of the story. It would explain more. I mean, I don't think like typically LSD is associated with crazy, yeah. aggressive behavior quite yeah. as often as PCP is. Wow. So uh, that would make more sense in this context um steve can we but, drop in the audio from the Chappelle show world series of dice where he says uh, i bought my mom a car and i spent the rest on pcp we can do that later <laughs> i bought my mom a car i spent the rest on pcp okay simple enough i like his style loves his mother loves pcp sorry bill continue <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, I think the, the, uh, the moral of this story is don't invite Dominic Pintarelli. That guy's bad news. I think well, everybody knows that. That's the legal takeaway here. That's true. Well, and also let's just consider it a teachable moment when I've like the next time I invite you guys over for an LSD party, that might be a PCP party. Just, just be cool. That's it. <laughs> I'll try my best, Alex. Uh, I'll, I'll do what I can. Um, okay. Thanks for being with me today, guys. This is a good spot to leave it. Um, appreciate it, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our contributing reporters, Corey Atkinson, Frank Runyon, and Craig Clough. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on whatever podcast platform you listen. It helps other people find our show. If you want to know more about all the stuff we've talked about today, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you again next week.